These tax credits that we're talking about are a direct pass-through to our customers to reduce their bills. In that sense, they enable us to go at the scale and the pace that we need to, to fundamentally address climate change, but at the same time, keep bills for our customers workable. This legislation really needs to be passed. It's critical for our sector. It's also critical for the transportation sector. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. EEI will join many around the world to celebrate Earth Day on Friday, April 22nd. But really, every day is Earth Day for EEI's member companies as they work to provide the affordable, reliable, and resilient clean energy that our customers value. Since last Earth Day, there has been great progress on clean energy initiatives and legislation. EEI and our member companies are working hard to keep that momentum going as we lead the way to a carbon-free future. In today's episode, We are joined by EEI Chairman Jerry Anderson, who is DT Energy's Executive Chairman, and Eric Gray, EEI's Vice President of Government Relations. They are here to discuss our support for clean energy tax policies and why these policies are good for our customers, as well as new carbon-free technologies, the electrification of the transportation sector, and more. Jerry and Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. We'll start with a question for Jerry. You've been with DT Energy for nearly 30 years, so you've witnessed and really have worked to lead the clean energy transformation that we see today. How does the pace of change that we are seeing today compare to earlier in your career? Well, first of all, it's uh, hard to believe I've been in this industry for almost 30 years. Uh, That's a bit of a stunner, but relative to the pace of change, uh, we are moving at a pace that is unlike anything I've seen in, in my 30 years in the industry. In fact, if I go back just half of my career, 15 years to 2007, uh, that was a time when the industry was really wrestling with whether it could or should fundamentally address climate change. Uh, Gas was perceived to be running out. Renewables were still very expensive. But if you fast forward then just five years, we were in the early phases of renewable deployment. Uh, The investments were, were beginning at scale and prices were coming down. You fast forward five more years to 2017, and the investments were were now happening at a much faster clip. Companies were making net zero commitments or large forward commitments on, on carbon reduction. And that brings you to today where we are at a large scale, fast pace reduction in carbon. And so when I look back 15 years, and, and, you know, it took us that period to move from really zero uh, to what's now a rapid pace of deployment. It makes me really hopeful, given the current pace of change, about what the next 5, 10, and 15 years are going to bring. Jerry, does the progress that we see today mean that companies actually began focusing on building this new clean energy generation years ago? Yeah, they had to uh, in order to position us uh, to do what we're doing today. It's like any large scale transformation of an industry, uh, there's a 
phase when the industry is experimenting with new technologies, generally at small scale and high cost. But that phase then is critical to the second phase, which is an acceleration uh, in adoption. And for us, that was probably around 2015. The experimentation was 2010 and prior. And those two phases enabled us to land where we uh, are today, which is mass deployment. Uh, every transformation goes through those phases. And as you look forward, we're gonna need the same thing for some of the new technologies that we will need to experiment with and then accelerate and then deploy at very large scale in the 2030s. Eric, are members of Congress and their staff ever surprised to hear the progress that we already have made as an industry? You know, Brian, I think if you would have asked me that question maybe three, four years ago, I would have probably actually said yes. Um, but, you know, I think as an industry, not just EEI, but then each of our member companies, uh, including Jerry's with DTE Energy, has really done a great job telling our story about the transformation that we've been going and the transition. Um, and, and it really has been the last two years that we've seen that, that huge emission reductions and also a lot of the announcements, as Jerry talked about, coming from each of our companies. So I, I, I would say they're not as surprised anymore when you talk to them, because I think a lot of them understand where we have come from. And I think also understand where we plan to go. And we and, and again, we've done a great job telling that story to, to, to key lawmakers. So they know where that trajectory is, and they can hopefully do things from a policy perspective to help us. And we've seen quite a bit of policy over the past year. So as chairman of EI, Jerry, what are some of the biggest clean energy accomplishments that we've the industry has seen in the past year? Well, I think the, the biggest accomplishment uh, happened in Congress. And I I think the understanding, uh, the, the increased understanding that Eric talked about was was critical to that. Um, you know, just a few years ago, I was pretty frustrated at the state of discussion in Congress. It has become so much more sophisticated and well-grounded. Uh, it's very encouraging. And it enabled uh, the most significant achievement of the past year, which was the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill or the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. That act includes substantial funding for clean energy technologies that are going to be critical uh, to finishing the trip to net zero. So it has funds directed at, for example, hydrogen uh, and carbon capture and storage and advanced nuclear. And the Department of Energy will administer a major program focused on technologies like those. In addition, it has significant funding directed at the transportation sector and uh, in particular, uh, electric vehicle charging infrastructure, which is gonna be critical to that industry accelerating its journey. Uh, transportation is now the largest emitting sector. The 2020s have gotta be a decade of big change uh, in the transportation sector and the funding in that bill will really help on that front. And then another I would mention is uh, the funds that the bill directs at transmission in our sector to help enable what everybody agrees is gonna to need to be a major expansion of our transmission infrastructure to enable these new clean technologies to fully build out. EEI advocated for many of the provisions of the bipartisan infrastructure deal that you mentioned, Jerry. And while we applaud that legislation, we also acknowledge that more needs to be done to deliver an affordable and resilient clean energy future for customers. Jerry, can you talk about the clean energy tax policies that Congress is considering 
and how these policies can help to accelerate the clean energy transformation. And really importantly, how do these policies help keep rates affordable for customers? Well, you know, as important as the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act was, uh, the clean energy tax provisions under consideration now uh, are more important. They are just a critical step uh, that needs to be taken by this country. You know, uh, our industry broadly is committed to net zero. Achieving that will require very large scale investments at a rapid pace. Anytime you make large scale investments at a rapid pace, you are likely to pressure rates. And we see that when we look at the forward plans, we're really struggling to make these investments and keep a lid on customer bills. Doing that has been made all that much more challenging given the environment we're in now, which is generally inflationary, but is specifically inflationary for some of the uh, uh, inputs to the clean transition, like solar panels, for example, which are under real pressure uh, due to supply chain issues that I think are well reported. And so when we look forward uh, to the near and medium term, we see the costs of these projects for DTE, as an example, under pressure to rise 15 or 20 percent, which is not what we need when we're trying to undertake a large scale transition affordable. These tax credits that we're talking about are a direct pass through to our customers to reduce their bills. And so they don't accrue to the company's bottom line, they accrue to our customers bottom line to reduce rates. And in that sense, they enable us to go at the scale and the pace that we need to, to fundamentally address climate change, but at the same time, keep bills for our customers workable. And we all know in this environment uh, that our customers need that. So this legislation really needs to be passed. It's critical for our sector. It's also critical for the transportation sector. Uh, and I simply hope that the next few months will get the job done in the U.S. Congress. And Eric, are there any specific provisions that might be of interest to folks? You know, I think from from our industry's perspective, uh, first and foremost, as Jerry talked about, you know, a lot of the tax credits are engineered around technologies. Uh, and, and, and also, um, one thing that we have been strongly advocating for is kind of a technology neutral approach, uh, where you're not really picking a winner or a loser, you know, given the technology. Um, and, and I think one of our CEOs said it the best where by having that technology neutral approach, it, it's giving them every tool in the toolbox uh, that they need because, you know, the sun isn't always sunny in one state first, the wind isn't always uh, blowing in one state. So by having that technology neutral approach, it applies to all varying different technologies. But as Jerry said, I mean, there's, there's, you know, uh, you know, tax credits for for hydrogen uh, storage, um, you know, existing nuclear, uh, wind, solar, uh, you know, it, it's at the end of the day encompasses everything and, and also transmission uh, as well, which is really kind of the, the key cog in delivering all of this clean energy uh, onto the grid. Uh, so, you know, from from our perspective, uh, there, there's a lot of, of, of big priorities in there for us. Um, and then also, too, some things that we'd like to work on, um, you know, things like normalization opt out for, for storage and transmission ITC uh, and things surrounding uh, the corporate minimum tax um, that we'd, we'd love to continue to have the conversations with lawmakers. And for the normal person out there, normalization opt out, well, well, how would that benefit customers? 
that at the end of the day uh, levels the playing fields uh, for for those that are that are building the, the technologies, so that we can actually deliver these tax credits on the front end of of the development of the projects. That's kind of the the layman's terms uh, of the normalization method of accounting. And you both mentioned nuclear energy, but really, Jerry, why is it important for these tax policies to support existing nuclear generation? Well, when you look at uh, zero carbon energy in our country today, uh, almost half of that uh, comes from nuclear energy. And if we were to lose any material portion uh, of that nuclear supply, we could invest hundreds of billions of dollars in additional wind and solar only to tread water. Uh, on the carbon front. And when we're trying to get to net zero as fast as we can, um, that doesn't work. And so I think policymakers uh, have come to grips with the fact that we cannot put at risk uh, significant fractions of the existing nuclear fleet. And yet we have that today. We have portions of the fleet under threat of closure. And so the tax credits included in the legislation directed uh, at nuclear plants recognize the critical role that nuclear is currently playing and is protective uh, of that nuclear energy and maintaining it uh, during this period of, of trying to grow uh, our zero carbon output. So I was really gratified that the understanding of the importance of the role that uh, that technology plays uh, really grew over the past two years. And uh, you, you see the proof of the pudding uh, with the way the a tax credit for nuclear is uh, a part of the bill that's moving forward, we hope. And Jerry, one thing I would add too, and, and really importantly, is how bipartisan it is. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's both parties seem to fully understand and grasp the important uh, the importance nuclear plays as that kind of foundational fuel for, for, for our industry. Not only the political parties, Eric, but um, many of the environmental organizations, yeah. they won't necessarily put it on their banner uh, but when you talk to the leaders quietly, they get it, that uh, at a time when we're in a battle uh, with carbon emissions, you can't have a major zero source contributor going backwards. Just, we need, as you said, we need every tool. And right now, nuclear is a big tool in this country, so it needs to be maintained. And there was a lot of buzz obviously last year about the Build Back Better legislation. And while that version of the legislation wasn't passed, Congress does continue to work on proposals in hopes of gaining support to get something through the Senate. So what's the latest that you're hearing up on the Hill, Eric? Yeah, a great question, Brian. And, and you know, I think it's, it's a little crystal ballish, but, you know, right now Congress is on a two-week uh, recess uh, for the Easter holiday. And when they come back on April 25th, you know, they're going to pivot their focus uh, on items that, that quote, com combat inflation. Uh, one of those being uh, th this legislation uh, that's called USICA or the American Competes Act. Those are two different versions, but that deals with U.S. competitiveness and, and supply chain issues uh, and, and issues surrounding, uh, you know, uh, competition with China. Um, so that that will be, a, you know, a focal point. Uh, but then also will be the next steps on that 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 second or third iteration of the Build Back Better legislation, which contains that clean energy tax package uh, that, that Jerry and myself have been talking about. Um, you know, and I do, you know, the conversations are, are happening behind the scenes right now on a, on a lower level, but I think when they come back from that recess, 
you're really going to see the discussions ramp up in that May to June time period uh, with the goals of them trying to get, I know they, they don't want to put deadlines out there, uh, but you know, they, they really do want to try and get some momentum going at least by either Memorial Day or 4th of July uh, time period so that they can try and get this, this legislation across the finish line. And Jerry, you had mentioned uh, kind of at the onset there how the electrification of the transportation sector really is a big component of the clean energy transition and reducing carbon emissions across the U.S. economy, really. And the Biden administration has made the deployment of EV charging infrastructure a priority as well, as we saw with the IIJ funding that you mentioned. So could you talk a little bit about how DT Energy and really EI's other member companies broadly are working to help accelerate the deployment of the EV charging infrastructure that we need? Look, the transportation sector, as I mentioned earlier, is, is now the largest emitting sector. It moved ahead of our sector. And when you look at emissions, uh, they haven't moved. Uh, they, they've been flat. And emissions in our sector are down essentially 40% and dropping fast. And so th the country has a lot at stake to get transportation on a trajectory that, that looks more like the electric sector. And the key to that, the key to building confidence uh, for in the electric vehicle consumer is a charging infrastructure that doesn't leave them nervous about getting stranded somewhere. And so uh, at DTE, we're working very carefully with and very closely with state uh, and local officials on the build out of that infrastructure and other utilities are doing similar things. But look, uh, electric vehicle charging is a regional and national game, not a local game. You need to be able to take trips across the country in an electric vehicle. Uh, and so this uh, leads to a need for coordinated action on this charging infrastructure. And to that end, um, the National Electric Highway Coalition was recently formed. Uh, it's a coalition of over 60 investor-owned utilities uh, and munis and co-ops, all targeting the build-out of this electric vehicle infrastructure within their territories, but more importantly, on major transportation corridors that would connect the, the territories of these companies. As I said, it's, it's aimed at uh, relatively quickly investing at scale uh, to give people confidence that they can take long trips uh, and not worry about whether they can get uh, charged up with confidence. So important step. I think it'll complement the work that the federal government is doing on this front, state governments are doing and other coalitions are, but we need a lot of parties uh, investing in this charging infrastructure because it's a key enabler. And just looking at some EI projections, I know that our, our team has projected to see 22 million EVs on US roads in 2030, and you would need approximately 100,000 uh, fast charging ports to support that level of EV use. And I think today we're around 10,000. So really looking at a, a tenfold deployment over between now and then to, to really meet that customer need. So uh, as you said, the National Electric Highway Coalition, a lot of those companies are, are aiming to do quite a bit between now and just the end of 2023. And with right. everything going on right now with oil prices and with the, the war in Ukraine and otherwise, I think there's more interest than ever before customers thinking about potentially their next vehicle being an electric vehicle. Yep, agree. 
So dozens of EEI's member companies have made commitments to significantly reduce their carbon emissions, uh, many of which are aiming for net zero by 2050 or sooner, as I think you both have mentioned. Jerry, can you discuss how important these commitments really are and the signals that they send to investors, policymakers, and customers? Because we've talked a little bit about Congress, you talked a little bit about the states, but being able to really articulate where we see we're going. Yeah, well, I can tell you from firsthand experience uh, that the day you make a net zero commitment is the day that that commitment comes to dominate your strategic planning at a company and your boardroom discussions. Uh, I cannot overestimate uh, the fraction of our time and energy strategically that is spent in one way or another uh, in the orbit of climate change. And that's a good thing. I mean, it's such a critical issue. It, that, that should be the case. The same is true of our boardroom discussions. It stuns me when I look at uh, our board agendas and see just how much of it is committed to this issue that wouldn't have been 10 years ago. When you make that net zero commitment, uh, you put yourself out there publicly and say, I'm gonna accomplish this. And it forces you into a very practical wrestling with all of the investments and, and regulatory changes uh, and communications that are going to be needed needed to pull this off, uh, and so uh, it's a it's a critical forcing function, but it also is a great uh, communication vehicle with your investors because it makes clear to them what your aspirations are uh, and what your projected pace of change is. It's a great uh, way to communicate with your customers about where the company intends to go. Uh, it becomes a center point in discussions with regulators. Uh, and with legislators. And I will tell you another really important group is your own employees. Uh, I remember the day we made our net zero commitment, uh, had an employee come up to me with tears in her eyes saying, I have never been so proud to be part of this company as I am today, because working on the climate change issue uh, gives people in our industry purpose. Uh, and these commitments uh, make it clear to them that we're serious about this and we're going to take it on at scale. So these net zero commitments are real. And when you make them, uh, they sort of take you over, uh, is one way to put it. So for our last episode, we actually had a, a few guests join us to talk about the Carbon Free Technology Initiative as well as our, our industry and environmental partners in that effort. And their focus on the technologies that companies are going to need to really achieve these goals. So when you're thinking about reaching these net zero goals, what role will new technologies have in getting there? Anybody who has, has spent significant time diving deep into the modeling of what it's going to take to pull off net zero uh, comes to the conclusion that wind, solar, and electric batteries alone are not going to finish the trip. Now, those technologies are going to play a very important role in the trip. And we at our company are investing at large scale in all of those. And we will do that for um, the next decade for sure. Uh, but to finish the trip, we are absolutely gonna need firm, dispatchable 24 seven sources of zero carbon power. And we are gonna need very large scale storage to deal with the seasonal not the daily, but the seasonal mismatches between energy production and energy use. And those things imply that we need to bring 
hydrogen production, for example, to commercial scale. Hydrogen produ production can give us zero carbon dispatchable electricity. It can also uh, play the role that natural gas does today in storing energy at very large scale to deal with those seasonal differences in use. Uh, so we need hydrogen brought to scale, we need carbon capture and storage brought to scale, and we need advanced nuclear uh, brought to commercial scale. Those are the three, there are some similar technologies, but those are the three that most observers are really focusing on as critical complements to the wind, solar, and battery investments that we're making now in order to get to net zero. Now, when you're speaking with policymakers, Eric, and, and EIs member companies as well, of course, does the focus on innovation help as well? To, again, having that clear vision for the future is helpful, but how do they respond to kind of the uncertainty and of the, the innovation and the work that we're doing to really innovate to, to help get there? No, and I, I think they respond to it well, and, and that's something that is kind of a, a core component or core focus of the Carbon-Free Technology Initiative is the policy recommendations that is coming out of it that, that when we go up to Capitol Hill and discuss with lawmakers that, that we really want them to focus on, and that's a partnership with our industry uh, so that, you know, we, we can, you know, have those conversations with, with the labs about uh, hydrogen and some of these newer technologies and how they may or may not work on our systems so that, you know, not just the focus is there for the government going in, you know, the right direction, but also the funding as well. Um, as Jerry talked about, we can go very far in, in our emission reductions, but to really get to the, those last, you know, couple percentages, it, it really needs those newer technologies uh, and, and to get them commercial scale in a short period of time. Uh, you know, the industry is, is, is there and, and, and stands really, uh, you know, with them uh, and has been working with the lawmakers. Uh, as, you know, Jerry talked about the, the IIJA that had passed, but right before that too, Chairman Manchin uh, had worked on energy legislation as well, which poured a ton of money into RD&D, into CCUS, into, into some advanced nuclear. So the lawmakers are there, and, and I think they're really starting to understand technology and innovation is the way to achieve a lot of these things quickly. And Eric, Eric I would add that, you know, you need these technologies for the last 20 or maybe 30 percent in our sector, but they turn out to be critical in other sectors that yep. may be harder to abate than ours. And those are large portions of the economy. So we, we tend to think of them uh, in terms of what they mean to us, but they're very important to other sectors. The other thing I would say is it was only a few years ago when uh, there was a lot of talk about the fact that uh, 10 years of investment in wind and solar will do the job. Uh, we should just get after that fast and hard. I hear none of that discussion or very little, I should say today. Uh, because I think there's been a coming to grips with the fact this is actually a very complex technical and engineering problem. Look, it's a social policy priority. It's almost an ethical dilemma or dimension to this dilemma. But the solution is an engineering technical challenge. And it's a complex and hard one. And we're going to need a lot of tools uh, in order to conquer it. Uh, I hear today a much more realistic discussion of the suite of technologies that are, as I said, going to be needed to finish the job. And, and Brian, I think that the great news on all of this is, is innovation is bipartisan. Um, you know, I think you're seeing 
both Democrats and Republicans both working on varying different technologies and trying to, to either fund specific programs so the breakthroughs can occur, can occur or, or design the, 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 the authorities for Department of Energy and these various labs to, to move forward with some of these. And, and, it's, and it's really a great thing to see from, from our industry's perspective. And I, I suppose I would add that clean electricity also has the opportunity to help reduce emissions from other sectors of the economy. So long before we reach net zero for our industry, our cleaner energy mix is going to help achieve significant reductions in those other sectors for sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So to bring us back to Earth Day, obviously clean energy is an important piece of the discussion, but America's investor-owned electric companies actually do quite a bit of work to protect wildlife and critical habitats. Jerry, can you share any examples of the work that DT Energy does to help support wildlife in the communities that you serve? So we talk a lot about the, the climate crisis, and appropriately so, but uh, the world uh, faces a biodiversity uh, and wildlife habitat crisis that's equally intense. And uh, one of the things uh, that we've done recently at DTE actually marries those two threats. Uh, our initial venture uh, in this direction was in partnership with the Nature Conservancy, where we acted to protect large swaths of forest land in Michigan's Upper Peninsula and change the way forestry was done on that land in order to protect biodiversity and create wildlife habitat in critical areas. But uh, the, the uh, companion benefit uh, was carbon sequestration. And we are using the carbon credits uh, from that project for a program in our, in our gas utility, actually, to enable customers to lower their carbon footprint. So the customers pay a little bit more uh, for these credits, but are able to take responsibility for the fact that uh, they're helping to, to undertake something that's important on the climate front, important on the biodiversity front, and is uh, you know, enabling them to feel like I've contributed. We also uh, followed up the, the work with the Nature Conservancy with a similar large scale project with the state of Michigan and uh, forest land that they own, again, to preserve habitat uh, and improve carbon sequestration. So uh, I love the projects. I think that natural climate solutions have to be a big part of the picture. And we're pushing in, trying to put our effort and our money uh, where our mouth is on that front. And uh, I feel good about it. And it's always great to read about all the work that really goes on across the country to protect critical habitats. I know uh, whether it's pollinators or monarch butterflies, where this critical infrastructure is, there's, there's always a lot of grass and flowers and the fact that there's just so much deliberate work that goes on to protect these habitats. We do that at scale in our rights of way and around our power plants. We create habitat at, at much smaller scale than the project I just mentioned, but um, you know, lots of small scale projects adds up uh, to some very important work too. So I, I agree with you, Brian. So we also cannot forget that energy efficiency is actually one of the most powerful tools that in that toolbox for reducing emissions. So uh, as we celebrate Earth Day, can each of you maybe tell us the favorite way in which you help keep your bill down and save energy in your home? Why don't you go first, Eric? <laughs> <laughs> I definitely will, Jerry. Uh, my, my wife can attest to this, but I'm the light guy. Now, I don't know if I can see it in my bill, 
but I am the guy that will literally turn off lights everywhere because my my wife will just turn them on and leave them on. So I will constantly go around the house and just turn off unnecessary lights. Now with LED bulbs and things like that, it, it may not be as much as it used to be, but that's probably where I am. I'm Mr. Energy Efficiency is I, I, I'm the light guy. I, if you turn on a light and, and you're not there, I'm going to be turning it off right behind you. But. Yeah, I, I'm with uh, Eric on that one. I, I take uh, lighting and heating uh, to, to almost paranoid levels. Um, I, I can't see a light that's on that I don't think should be off a lot of times. But, you know, another one that, that um, played out uh, for me recently ties back to a, a trip that I took right after I left college. Uh, my brother and I took a trip around the world, took about six months and traveled all over the place. But one of the places we ended up in the heart of the fall was uh, Switzerland and Austria, the Alps. And it was crisp during the day and flat out cold at night up in the mountains. And we used to stay in the homes. You'd rent a room up in the, the upper floor of these homes. And when you show up in the evening to hang around with family, um, they heated the homes with these small, efficient wood stoves or fireplaces. And essentially, they didn't heat the upstairs. They just let a little heat drift up from the wood stove. And you went up to a pretty cold bedroom and a big uh, down comforter. And it always struck me as really sensible. The only thing upstairs was bedrooms. Uh, why would we keep those warm like we do the downstairs? And so I adopted their methodology. And we pretty much close up the upstairs and turn the heat way down, let a little heat trickle up, but when it's time to go to bed, you're sleeping in a, in a cold bedroom, uh, which I like. And the other thing that happened a couple of years ago is I invested in one of these new high efficiency wood burning fireplaces. So look, I love a wood burning fire uh, in the heart of a cold winter in Michigan, but I want that fire, which burns wood from my backyard uh, to be efficient and to actually uh, add to the heating of the home and offset my use of, of natural gas. And these new stoves are 80% plus efficient and they're beautiful. And uh, so I sit there at night enjoying a fire, feeling good about uh, offsetting my use and uh, uh, gives me a lot of enjoyment through cold winters in Michigan. Thank you both so much for spending some time with us today and for all the work that you're doing to help lead this clean energy transformation that continues to accelerate. Happy to do it, Brian. Anytime, Brian. Thank you. I want to let you know that registration is now open for EEI 2022, our first in-person annual meeting in three years. This reimagined thought leadership forum will focus on the technologies, pathways, tools, and partnerships needed to continue reducing carbon emissions in our sector and across the economy. EEI 2022 will be hosted from June 20th to 22nd at the JW Marriott Orlando Grand Lakes in Florida. If you are committed to clean, EEI 2022 is the place to be. For more information and for registration, visit our website at eei.org. You can also find a registration link in this episode's show notes. We hope to see you there. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.